The title of the message today is Conduct Matters. Conduct Matters. Specifically in marriage. Specifically in marriage. And before each and every one of you who are not married, exclude yourself from this. Think again. Because each and every one of you are a product or influenced by some marriage. Every one of us. So the fact that the conduct matters specifically in marriage goes to each and every one of us, whether we're single or we're married or we're on the road to being married. Conduct matters specifically in marriage. When you're influenced by the person of Jesus Christ, when you're influenced by the person of Jesus Christ, your character is transformed and is now a reflection of your conduct, the way you live. If this truth does not define you and govern the way you live, you will ultimately begin to redefine all areas of institution. All areas of institution. So that it is conducive, so that it is conducive to your lifestyle. Specifically, marriage. This is something I did not make up. I don't make these things up. Conduct matters. And you get the full intent of this in Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 he says this. Paul says this. I beseech you therefore brethren. In other words he's saying I beg you Roman church. I beg you Christian. Listen to what I say. I beseech you. It's imperative in other words. By the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Wholly acceptable to God. Which is your reasonable service. In other words. Sanctify yourself so that God can use you. Transform you. Define you. Give you revelation. Give you vision. Give you truth. Give you character. Verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove. Or in other words. That you may influence society all around you. What is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Let's pray. Father. Thank you for your truth. Lord, all we have is truth. And for us to go out and try and redefine it is to go away from you and reject the things that you say. Your lifestyle. The relationship with you is convictive. It is. Help us to know that. That living according to you and to your heart is a convictive lifestyle. It's different. Help us to receive that. Help us not to reject that. Your whole purpose in life for sending your son was so that we can know you. But there is a barrier. There is a wall called sin. Pride. So Lord, I pray you would break down the walls. That you would take opportunity today and speak to every heart and mind that's came here. And Lord, may they not leave this place half-hearted about you. Please teach me. Please teach us. May your Holy Spirit be the conducting spirit, conducting entity of our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Conduct matters. Go over to First Peter. That's where we're going to be today. And specifically, verse First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. But before we get into First Peter chapter 3, verse 7, I want to tell you a little background about Peter. First Peter. There's two epistles that he wrote. First Peter and Second Peter. And we know from the first verse in these letters that it was wrote, written by the Apostle Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, verse 1. So we know that it's written by Peter. And it's written to a specific organization or a specific people called Christians who were persecuted and dispersed throughout all the area of Turkey. Modern day Turkey. That's where he's specifically speaking to. Now this letter, both of these letters were passed around at different churches and read amongst all the churches. So this is for us also. But the theme of this book strictly hits on two things. Conduct and persecution. Conduct and persecution. Strictly enforcing or talking about the encouragement and a living hope in Jesus Christ. So you got conduct and persecution. Leonard Ravenhill says this. He says, 
We have all, when we have come to Christ, entered into the school of tribulation. Every one of us has a level of tribulation in our lives, whatever that might be, for the intent of Jesus Christ. Look at this in verse 6 for chapter 1. I'm giving you some key verses to bring about the whole essence of what Peter's talking about, conduct and persecution. Verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice now for a little while. If need be, you have been grieved by various trials. In other words, you have been downtrodden. You've been affected by it. Your heart is down. You see the encouragement? He's coming in. He knows these people have been hit on different levels in life. Why? Because they have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. That's why. No other thing. Just because they've chosen to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus said the road is narrow. Few are on it. Difficulties it might be. But the purpose of it all is in verse 7. Look, that the genuineness of your faith, that the genuineness of your faith, in other words, the realization for you and me that this faith is real, the reality of it is surety. You can count on this. It has character, it has quality, and it has a promise. That's what genuineness means. It means it's true. You can rely on it. And the only way you're going to find out the genuineness of it is to sign up for the school of tribulation and go through it and walk through it. However, you can still have joy in it. Why? Because of this. Look at verse 7. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious, much more precious, much more precious than gold or silver. What Peter's saying than anything in this world that can this world can offer. Anything, it's much more precious. There surpasses value, in other words, is what he says. Through it is tested by fire. Through it is tested by fire. Be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see? Do you see the intent? You have to. We, for some reason, God has ordained this thing of faith, this life with Him. That we have to go through these things in life to really see how faithful we are because of the depravity of our heart. It is, if you're truly honest with yourself, you know your heart's dirty. And you have to come back to a place and say, Lord, I want you. Refine me. Renew me. The Bible says that in Jeremiah. The Lord said that about his people. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Jesus backed it up and said, out of the mouth proceed what the heart the heart adulteries adultery murders all those things that dwell with inside if we don't have a transformation of our lives every bit of it back we'll go down to verse 13 chapter 1 here's another key element for this theme of this book therefore gird up the loins of your mind therefore gird up the loins of your mind can somebody turn on these fans here i'm like blazing thank you in other words, it says this. Prepare yourself for action. Prepare yourself for action. And look, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming your lust yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. Or in other words, because you didn't know any better. That's what he's saying. That's pretty graceful. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. He uses that word that was used in Leviticus chapter 20. And the only way we can be holy is to consecrate ourselves. Chapter 20, it says it right in there. The Lord says, consecrate yourselves to the Lord because he is the one who will sanctify you. In other words, set your life apart, give it to him, offer yourself as a living sacrifice so that he can transform you and you find out your purpose in life. That's what being holy is. It's not what we think or the world thinks. It's like you got a halo on and you're just walking out and you're better than everybody else. No, there's a process to it. There's a process to it. That's what sanctification means. It's the process of knowing the faithfulness of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Here's the meat and potatoes of First Peter chapter 3, verse 7, what we're going to get into. Here's the context of it. Chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Beloved, you Christians, you church, 
I beg you, I beg you. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. In other words, the, that, that whole mindset of that, that, that language there is like, this is not your home, folks. Do not get attached to this place because it's going to burn at some point. The home is another home with Jesus Christ face to face. That's why he calls us, or that's why we consider us pilgrims and sojourners. We have another home. We're here temporarily learning to be holy, learning how faithful Jesus Christ is, learning how the love of God the Father is in the midst of uncertainty, of perversion, of hatred, of all kinds of other messes that this world gets, we get ourselves into. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. A battle for your heart. There's a battle for our heart here. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may be glory, excuse me, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. You see the influence that God values so much in our character that we be an influence, that we represent his name well. In other words, you can look at this verse and say, in the battle for your heart, character does matter. It influences and will be a witness in the day of visitation of Almighty God. It'll be a witness to you. The way it reads, it seems like in Revelation, or at least at the Bema Seat, or even in Revelation, our works as Christ, in Christ, are going to be a witness to us. How we've displayed Jesus Christ in our lives and how we've lived and how we've used the truth and portrayed the truth in our families and our marriages. Verse 13, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Not for man's sake. For the Lord's sake. Whether the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Here's he's making an emphasis more on what the context. Listen, for this is the will of God. This is the will of God, this conduct. This is God's will. That by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Your conduct will silence people. Go down to chapter 3. Go down to chapter 3. Wives, likewise. Wives, likewise. We have to go through this before I get to verse 7. We have to. Otherwise, you won't understand the context. But look at what it says. Wives, likewise, display good conduct, in other words, is what he's saying. Likewise what? Likewise to what I was just saying. Display this kind of conduct where it silences the evil, where it influences society, where it influences your husband. You see the value God has on women? Look at, be submissive to your own husbands. Oh, we all hate that word, submit. Why? Because it sounds like slavery. But truly what it means in the Greek, what Peter's trying to say, he says this. He says this, respect the authority or know the authority that God has given to your husband. Understand it. Respect it. Fall in line with it. That's what he's saying here. Be submissive to your own husbands that even some that do not obey the word, the unbelievers, even the believers, because even men in Christ sometimes go on the down low. That they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. Look at that. The influence of a Christian. The influence of somebody's character. Verse 2, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear and reverence, because now you're respecting or now you're submitting to the authority that God has given your husband. You're trying to fit in so he can be the best husband he can. So he can love you. That's what God's saying here. Look at this. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair wearing gold or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be hidden, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, don't misread this. Don't think that women need to be not pretty. 
Because that's not what, what Peter's saying. He's not saying, hey, don't get all gussied up and look beautiful for your husband. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying here is, don't use that beauty to try to win your husband over. It's the inner beauty, the incorruptible stuff. The stuff that's inside, the stuff that's weights more than the outside that corrupts. Because if you're true and honest with yourself, we corrupt. We are, my body is going downhill. He's not saying, don't look all pretty and, lo- and, 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 and lovely for your husband. That's not what he's saying. He says, don't let that be what attracts your husband. Let it be the chaste conduct inside. I think a lot of us women think that we have to look a certain way to be holy for our husbands. No, that's not what he's saying. The beauty inside is what counts. And it's also for the man. The beauty inside is what counts for the man. Look at this. Look at the value God puts on this. Which is very precious in the sight of God. Oh my gosh. You see how much he, he values a woman in their chaste conduct. He puts it in a surpassing value of worth silver or gold. I mean, it means so much to him. That's what that word precious. And by the way, Peter uses this word precious at least five times in this epistle. And there's only five chapters. He's trying to get us a, a point across to us. This is how God values women. This should be an indicator for us husbands how we should be looking at our wives. How we should be perspectively treating our wives. Look at, For in this manner in former times the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and not afraid with any terror. We, we know Sarah messed up. She wasn't the perfect wife. We know that. She, she tried to rush God's promises. Hey, take Hagar, take my handmaid. Make it happen. But one of the things that Peter's trying to get across to us is that she submitted in such a way to support Abraham's calling that God gave him. Not himself. He didn't give that to himself. God gave that to him. So the, the wife, he's saying, fell into place to support the husband so she can, he can be the best husband and follow the Lord. That's what she did. That is beautiful and precious in the sight of the Lord. That's what God's saying. Nowhere does it say that the women supposed to be a doormat. Nowhere. We are never to look at women any lower than that. Than what God says, precious. Verse 7, here's the meat and potatoes. The meat and potatoes. Finally, or excuse me, husbands likewise. What does that mean? Husbands likewise display the conduct. Display the same conduct I've been talking about. I'm still continuing with this context of holy conduct. You likewise. You likewise. First element, know your role. Another two, in other words, to display this holy conduct and conduct matters specifically in marriage to actually live that out you have to know your role every one of us have to know it in our jobs we have to know what's expected of us you have to know your position in my job we have position descriptions if they didn't my guys wouldn't know what they were expected of sometimes they don't they say well I didn't know but yeah, hey look here how do we find out how do we know what our role is it's right here Know your role. That's the first element. And to know your role or the purpose of your role, and specifically in marriage, to know the intent of marriage, you have to go back to the beginning. Chapter 2 of Genesis. Turn there with me if you please. Please. To know the specific intent or the foundation of marriage, you have to know your role as a husband. God ordained this. It was the first institution that he instituted after he created the heavens and the earth. He created man, and then he created woman, and then he instituted marriage. That was the first institution. It all comes, and the foundation comes right there from God. It's divine, and it's defined by God. And it's, it's so interesting, because if you look at, at, at verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined together to his wife, and they shall become one. It doesn't say anything about marriage, but that's the whole foundation of it. That's the whole union of it. 
Paul backs it up in the epistles. And we see the examples of it all through the Old Testament. But we see a beautiful example of a marriage between a man and a wife as the model of Jesus Christ in the church. So look at the foundation of it. Verse 18. And the Lord said, it is not good that man be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Do you see how God valued man so much? He said, you know what? My boy Adam is, is alone. And I can see this is, this is hurting him. This is affecting him. I gave him an assignment. He was supposed to what? Take dominion over the earth and be fruitful. That was his assignment. And he says, you know what? It's not good that my boy be alone. I'm going to give him someone, a helper, a helper. That's what he called her. And he built her. That word built in the Hebrew is specifically and intended from a foundation for a specific purpose. He built her with a quality for Adam. We see made, but it really is translated built. He built that in her. That's the quality that he built in her. He put his image in this woman for Adam to be her helper. And that word helper doesn't mean it's a slave. Doesn't mean you're supposed to do what I tell you to do. You do my clothes. You do my laundry. You bear my children. You raise them up. You take care of this. Take care of that. No, that's not what it means. It means helper. But when we see this, how God built this, you see from chapter, or excuse me, from verse 18 all the way to verse 24, it was for a specific purpose that he built her for, for enjoyment, for an influence in society, for family, and for eternity. That's what he did it for. It was for an eternal purpose. And he made Adam the head of household. The head of household. But that word helper means this in the Hebrew. It's pronounced this way. Azar. Azar, meaning to bring relief, aid, or help. A friend or ally or one who helps. That's what it means. I don't see anywhere in there where it says doormat. Zero places. Or slave. Or do what I say. Or it's my way or the highway. I don't see any of that. Because if you look at that word, it's used only... In that specific area, but also in the area to find God's character as the helper. Look at how it's used. Psalm 33, verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Hosea 13, verse 9. Oh, Israel, you are destroyed, but your help is from me. Just looking at those verses right there alone shows the value that God has on women for husbands. Beautiful. That should be a good indicator of what our role is as a husband. They are not slaves. They are there to partake in this assignment that he gave us. Beautiful. It's interesting when you look at this, how he valued marriage. He valued it so much it was the first institution for man. And the enemy also valued it, didn't he? Because if you go over to chapter 3, that was the very first attack. It was attack on marriage. And when we look today, that's where the attacks are. To redefine marriage, to make it something that it's not, and to be okay with it as a church. And not stand in the gap. And plead before God on behalf of man. We let it be redefined. I think the only thing that's holding this, the United States together, is the church. Praying Christians. They're on their knees praying for stuff like this. For marriages in the church, for marriages outside the church, and for the defining principle of what marriage is. Go down to th- uh, verse uh, 24 again. There's three elements that God talks about in here. Look. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one. Three elements. Leave, cleave, and know. Leave, cleave, and know. If you take anything from today, look at that. Leave, cleave, and know. That's what God's saying there. Leave, cleave, and know. Leave all other relationships, including your family, friends, jobs, uh, 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 extracurricular activities, whatever, the video games, whatever it might be that gets in the way of this precious relationship 
that God has given us to join together and enjoy. That's what leave means. Leave it all for the specific intent to know your wife. Understand that though. Look at that. Look at how God values that. That is the only relationship that he allows us to do that outside of him and the Father and him and Jesus Christ and us. It's the only one. You see how much value he has on that? But to to do it right, Jesus has to be the center. But look at the second one. Leave, cleave, and no. Cleave. That means to stay together no matter what. A glue where man does not separate what God has joined. A glue. Unseparable. No matter what. That's what he's saying here. I know we all have circumstances, but that's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. Leave, cleave, and know. And know is this. An intimacy in such a way where it produces a oneness about the couple, which emulates us in the Father, Jesus in the Father, us in the Father. Do you see leave, cleave, and know? It's not just for marriages, church. It's not. It's for our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why I said don't exclude yourself from this message. Verse 23. This is probably one of the most remarkable verses in this whole chapter. This is the love song singing in Adam's heart when he sees Eve. And it only can be really defined. I mean, we got to ask Adam when we get there. I mean, we can take apart the Hebrew and try and figure out what he said. But this is a personal experience by Adam, just like it's a personal experience with us in the Lord, just like it's a personal experience with you and your wife when you first met her, when you first knew that spark. This is what he says. Look at this is now my bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In other words, you can translate it this and I'll have time to explain it, but translate it like this. Look, I have finally found the one who can complete me, who has takes away my loneliness, who will be as dear to me as my own flesh. She is so beautiful. She is perfectly suited to me. She is all I ever need. That's what he's saying here. He fell in love with this. God brought her to him. And he's like, wow, this is beautiful. Again, this should give us a good indicator of the husband's role. I like to look at a lot of things with a team analogy. And I'll just give you this really quickly. Team analogy. A marriage team It is a team. Marriage team. There's four letters in team. T-E-A-M. The first letter, T, together. There's no individualism, no individuality in team. You're one and you're together. The second one, E, equipped. The Lord has gifted each one of us with talents. He's equipped you with a special talent to serve for a special purpose. That's where you get A, assignment. God has given every one of us a special calling in life, whatever that might be. I don't know. You know it's specifically for the intent of you two together. It's specifically for the intent of you for the church. That's what it's for. That's where you get motivation, the last one. Motivation. It all has to come from the foundation of Jesus Christ. It all does. Jesus has to be the center of the marriage. It has to be the motivating force. It has to be the motivating purpose. Why? Because what I said in the beginning, he has to be the transformation of the heart in order for this marriage to work in its perfect union God has designed for us. He's not only the model, but he has to be the motivation of the heart. His character must be the sole influence of each one of a man and woman, not just man, not just woman. It has to work on both sides. We must internalize it, realize it, accept it, embrace it, and quit trying to redefine everything. The whole purpose of why we're redefining everything is because we want to reject what God has for us. It's not because we don't have the truth or we don't have the facts. I believe as I keep looking and looking and why people doubt, go to the character of the heart behind the question. What are they doing? What lifestyle are they trying to endorse? That's a good indicator of that question. Because every bit of it, the evidence is brought to the surface. You have it there. 
The rejection comes from the heart. That's why Jesus said, who can know the heart? It's not about the facts. It's about the heart. Second element, the agape way, the agape way. Go back to first Peter. I'm sorry. First Peter chapter three. Sorry, it's kind of warm up here. First Peter chapter three, verse seven. Husbands, likewise. Dwell with them with understanding. The agape, agape way. Dwell with them with understanding. When you embrace the truth of who Jesus Christ is and you actually embrace it and it becomes a, a, your lifestyle, this becomes the first step in the process of our will to commit to God's way and do it His way. That's the agape way. See, because God's way is the agape way. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. That's the agape way. That's His love. Love one another as I have loved you. This is my commandment, new commandment to you. That's love. The agape way. There's three things that don't fail. Love, faith, and hope. And the greatest of these is what? Love. That's the agape way. But to dwell with your wife with understanding is an aspect of agape. It's an aspect of agape. But to get that there, you have to understand there's other three elements of, of, of love, of agape. Phileo, storgios, and eros. Phileo, storgios, and eros. Phileo is this, an affectionate, an affectionate endearment towards another. Do you know God has that kind of love towards us? It's in John chapter 16, verse 27. It's a friendship love. He considers you dear to his heart. Storge is an affectionate family bond. That's what that is. Storge is an affectionate family bond where you feel belonged because of that love and that cherishness and that affection that goes on. You also feel that within a church. You'll find that in Romans 12 verse 10. Eros, we all know about Eros. That's the erotic romantic love that a man is supposed to have for a woman and vice versa. You can find everything about it in Song of Solomon. Beautiful picture of it. It also, I don't know for sure, but it shows us this picture and model of God wooing the church. This romantic love that a husband is supposed to have. But all this stuff, you guys, those three elements cannot be real without the agape because without agape, each one of those elements are based on performance of the other person based on performance of the other person. Let's get real. That's the way it is. Oh, I hate him. Did you hear what he said to me? All that stuff. The agape way is, you know what? I'm going to pray for that guy. I know I got to change my heart because right now I want to zap that guy. The agape way is the opposite of the flesh. Very simple. It's so difficult. So difficult. To dwell with them with understanding. To dwell with them with understanding. That word dwell speaks of a cohabitation. A domestic association. Where the two are communicating together. Where they're actually communicating. It's not a one-sided communication. It's both. Trying to figure each other out. That's what he means by dwell. Understanding is gnosis. Gnosis. That's where you get the word knowledge. And that particular intent of knowledge is this. And a knowledge about someone or a knowledge about something which sparks wisdom, which sparks wisdom, a knowledge that imparts wisdom. What is it? Knowledge in action. Knowledge in action. It's kind of like what James said. Faith without works is dead. If you have this knowledge and you don't pursue it, it's just knowledge. It's dead knowledge. It's no good. It's kind of like being an encyclopedia. There's, I know people that are encyclopedias and do nothing with it. They just know everything. And then you feel like, oh, you know, hey man, you guys know so much. It makes you feel like down to here. Knowledge, the gnosis, knowledge that imparts wisdom. So in other words, you can look at this like this. 
because you dwell with your wife with understanding in this way, you study her, you listen to her, you talk to her, you spend consistent quality time with her. You now are developing the knowledge you need to give her your very best and show her the love that makes her feel cherished. That's what Peter's saying here. You dwell in such a way where you want to just love that wife because you want to be able to bring out the qualities that God built in her. That's what it's all about. That's dwelling with understanding. Now, understand something this. Understand another truth, another aspect to that. It's not just on the man. The woman needs to do the same thing. Peter said that. He said, fit in with your wife's call or your husband's calling as a man. Know it. Support it. Find out what he needs. Be his helper because that's what God created you to be. Not the convictor, but the helper, the encourager. God's way, the agape way. God's way, the agape way. To dwell with understanding, again, like I said, is an aspect of the agape way. No matter what the response is, or no response for that matter, no motive except to give the utmost kindness and sacrificial need of another. Unconditional, not based on behavior or performance. A consistent concern for the welfare of others. Constructive and purposeful. Example of who does this. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. You don't have to go there, just listen. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave us Jesus. He loved us in such a way, no matter how we would respond, because he knew the specific purpose of it. It was constructive and it was purposeful to what? For the intent of a relationship. Let me beg your attention one more time. It also shows a permanent Commitment, a permanent commitment. A beautiful example of this is a story from Ed Wheat. Ed Wheat used to be a medical doctor. He was a family physician back in the 80s. He wrote a book called Love Life to keep it, to make it real and to breathe. I think that should have been the last book. There shouldn't have been any more after that, in my opinion. Ed Wheat, a love life. He was a physician, a family physician, but he noticed something before he was a Christian. People would come in and they would, he would, he would meet their medical needs, but he knew that there was something underlying going on and he found out that the root of everything else was the marriage. Something was going on in the marriage and he didn't know how to handle it. God brought him a patient who led him to Jesus Christ. After that, Ed Wheat became a, a Christian and his, his family was transformed and his children and he started a ministry in marriage and sex. Christian ministry for marriage, uh, a Christian marriage and sexual relationship. That's what he started. And he was changing lives and also changing his own. But he wrote this. Listen, just please listen. In this case, a man loved his wife tenderly. Or excuse me, let me back up. Sorry, I'm going way too fast. Let me illustrate with a case history, the most beautiful example of agape love that I observed personally. In this case, a man loved his wife tenderly and steadfastly for a total of 15 years without any responding love on her part. There could be no response for she had developed cerebral articular sclerosis. I can't speak right now because I'm going 100 miles. The chronic brain syndrome, in other words. At the onset of this disease, she was pretty vivacious lady of 60 who looked at least 10 years younger. In the beginning, she experienced intermittent times of confusion. For instance, she would drive to Little Rock, then find herself at an intersection without knowing where she was or why or how to get back home. She was a formal or former school teacher. She had enjoyed driving her own car for many years. But finally, her husband had to take away her keys for her safety. As the disease progressed, she gradually lost all her mental faculties and did not even recognize her husband. 
He took care of her at home by himself for the first five years. During that time, he often took her for visits. She looking her prettiest, although she had no idea of where she was. And he proudly displaying her as his wife, introducing her to everyone, even though her remarks were apt to be inappropriate to the conversation. He never made an apology for her. He never indicted that there was anything wrong with what she had just said. He always treated her with the utmost courtesy. He showered her with love and attention no matter what she said or did. The time came when the doctor said she had to go into a nursing home for intensive care. She lived there for 10 years, part of that time bedfast with arthritis. And he was with her daily. As long as she was able to sit up, he took her for a drive each afternoon out to their farm or downtown to visit the family. He never in any way was embarrassed that she was so far out of touch. He never made a negative comment about her. He did not begrudge the large amount of money required to keep her in the home all those years. Never even hinted that it might be a problem. In fact, he never complained about any detail of care throughout that long illness. He always obtained the best for her and did the best for her. This man was loyal, always true to his wife, even though his love had no response for 15 years. This is agape, not in theory, but in practice. And he goes on to say this, and I'll close. I can speak of this case with intimate knowledge. For these people were my own wonderful parents. What my father taught me about agape. Through this example, I can never forget. You and I can have that agape. The Bible says the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The agape love. Jesus says that it was for our advantage that he goes to the Father so that we can have the Holy Spirit. You and I can have this. But it's a choice. It's a will of the heart to love no matter what. That's where the cleave comes in. That's where the cleave comes in. Are you willing to commit? Third element, keep your perspective. Keep your perspective. Dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Just look at that last part. Your prayer life should not suffer. God puts such a value on our devotional life. But one of the greatest characters to keep this perspective, one of the greatest characters in God is His faithfulness. That alone right there should cause us to keep our perspective in wherever we're at and whatever we're going through, whatever our marriage is like, how bad it is, how good it is. That alone just keeps our perspective. But we can see the great value God puts on women here. Look at what He says. Honor. Honor. I want to hang out on that word just for a second. Honor. It means this, to value in the highest degree that a price was paid for, precious, surpassing value. In other words, God puts this high rank, this high value on this rank and position of a woman. That's what he's saying there, to honor this woman. But then it goes on and says, weaker vessel. And we've twisted that all up. I don't know, there's all kinds of stuff about it. But I look at this, the background of it. In Peter's day in that society... The Greek society considered women a social weakness. A social weakness. Having no value except for the purposes of man and whatever he desired. So he's making reference. So I wonder, I wonder if Peter's using a play on words. He might be saying this. Listen, the society in which we live in considers women to be a weaker vessel. But the Lord says, be holy because he is holy. So our perspective should be different. Honor the woman as a precious vessel. Honor the woman as a precious vessel. I've heard a beautiful woman one time tell me this. God considers women precious. Precious china to be handled with care, not like Tupperware. That's true. They're not Tupperware. They're precious china. 
No matter what they're going through. Guess what? God saved you. He can save that woman. He can save that husband. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how messed up they are. God can save. That's a promise. That's his faithfulness. That's what keeps our perspective. The other truth is the joint heirs in the grace of life. The joint heirs in the grace of life. When we look at this, we truly understand and realize our role in life, specifically for both of them, man and woman. Look at as the weaker vessel and being heirs together of the grace of life. In other words, both of them have a specific eternal purpose in this life. God has given that marriage a specific purpose for a specific intent. And both of them are supposed to step up to that role. Both of them. That's what he's calling. That's what he's doing. My wife and I knew a couple a few years back. It's a Christian couple, a Christian family. And one of the men, one of the guys in this family, they're the husband, started having an emotional affair. I have no idea what an emotional affair is. But it's not good. This emotional affair was happening with another woman. So in other words, he wanted to, 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 to solidify that and he wanted to even go even further. So he told his wife he wanted a divorce because he no longer felt this love anymore. Telling his wife that. Both of them were rooted in agape at one point or another. She was rooted as well. That devastated this lady. She took off in her car, ran down the street in her car, and all of a sudden she told me, so the Holy Spirit came upon her, and she said, I'm going back, and I'm going to fight for my marriage, and I'm going to pray for my husband because he's lost. It's not real. It's a lie. She went back. He's in the house. She got on her knees and says, we're praying. I'm not leaving you. We're going to work this out. We're going to make this work. Why? Because she kept her perspective. She was rooted in the agape. Us husbands, the role of the husband is agape, the wife, just like Christ loved the church. She is our helper. It's not a one-man show. It is not a one-man show. God put her there for, with you for a specific reason. Take advantage of that. Enjoy it. Use the gift that God gave us. And also for the woman. Peter exhorts us as well, the woman as well, to fulfill that role as a wife, to support your husband in such a way that he can be the best at what he's doing and fulfill that calling God's given him. It takes two, not just one, it takes two. But, I've said this before, if something's going wrong and it's going haywire and it normally does, especially in the church, we should be having marriages that are model marriages of Jesus Christ, but unfortunately we have sin and it gets rough in here. I've said this before, one man with God is a majority, but I would take it another step further, one woman and a man with God is a majority. Anything can happen, no matter what side it is on. No matter what side. The influence is there, the agape is there. The Holy Spirit's there. My last story about keeping perspective. <clears throat> this story happened years ago and we know this couple that just their, their lives are transformed. But this marriage has suffered lies, lies. Lies will destroy the marriage. What is a lie? The definition of it is a specific story with the intent to deceive. With the intent to deceive. That's lies. And in most marriages, a lot of marriages, that's what takes place on either part. And in this specific marriage, lies have been running wild for a long time. The wife was saved. The man wasn't. They had children. The wife was on her knees. She wanted a godly husband. That she wanted to fulfill her role that God had called her to be. She wanted that family. She wanted that marriage that was defined by God. 
But this man on this side, even though he was sober, he finally got off all the heroin and all the drugs and all the alcohol and everything else, but he was still on a road to hell. Sober. Treating his wife with disrespect, his family yelling at her, doing everything you can think of. Adultery was taking place every day. Lies, 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 lies. Finally, this woman was on the floor crying, praying out. She was, she was surrounded by people in her church. And they asked her, what is the Lord telling you? What is the Lord telling you? Isn't that beautiful when the church body comes around and doesn't say anything? They're sitting there and they're praying with them. And they're going, what is the Lord telling you? Instead of going, hey, I have a word from the Lord. No, they're saying, what is the Lord telling you? Because it's her, just like Job. It's her going through the suffering. It's him going through the suffering. And she said, I feel the Lord's telling me to leave. And they say, prayed, and they said, well, then leave. She left. She had to get out of the way so that God, the Lord, could deal with this guy. It had to happen. She took the family and took off. He had no idea where she was for a week. It devastated this guy. He was on the knees, and he's on the floor, and he was crying like a big baby. Where did my wife go? Where did my kids go? God had to deal with him to put him down in, in such a way where he had to reveal his sin to himself and say, man, what have I done? This wife, she took the initiative to pray. She kept the perspective. Six months. It took six months for this marriage to be healed. Stuff takes time. Stuff takes time. It's not so much that the person who committed the sin was healed, but it's the receiver of the wrong. They have to get that trust back. They have to get that trust. It took six months. Until the Lord finally showed this woman, your husband is healed. And she saw humility in that guy and took him back. And their lives are transformed. Why? Because she kept her perspective. She kept her perspective. I talked to this guy and he tells me every time, and when we talk about this story, he tells me this. He says, Mike, I know love and I know forgiveness because of this. My wife forgave me and she took me back. I know it. I know Jesus' love and his forgiveness because she showed it. Powerful. You see the influence. Know your role. The agape way. Keep your perspective. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. I thank you for the truth. I thank you for your love and the quality of your love. And I pray, Lord, that every one of us here would not go away with a half heart. That we would leave this place with the full heart of Jesus, the full heart of love, the full heart of truth. I thank you so much for your love. Lord, I pray you would heal each and every heart here that came here. Whatever the condition might be, heal them, please. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.